Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, this latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails is brought to you by the Jan Sobieski biography, which of course makes no sense, but it's basically a way for me to advertise the fact that if you are enjoying this coverage of the last siege of Vienna and you're enjoying or delving into this era in general, make sure you check out the Jan Sobieski biography. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Which is available to patrons at the $5 level. By paying $5 a month, you can avail of the 12-part biography series that covers the life and times of Jan Sobieski from his birth to his great achievements and wonderful successes and of course his stupendously famous appearance outside Vienna. There's so much more to the story of Jan Sobieski than the last siege of Vienna, so I hope you'll join me by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or going to wdfpodcast.com and following the links from there and join up to listen to this wonderful, incredible story that I think is actually quite interesting.
If you're not the kind of person that wants to have extra content, maybe you're too busy, maybe you don't want to pay for stuff, that is fine. I would like to thank you first and foremost for coming here at all and for listening to this podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing right now, whether you're running, whether you're ironing, whether you're walking the dog, I really appreciate you listening and letting When Diplomacy Fails be part of your life. If When Diplomacy Fails is something you enjoy, if you enjoy listening to it and if it makes your life that much better, Please do let people know. Spread the word. Share the fact that When Diplomacy Fails exists. And just by doing that, you have done Be Fit. You've done the last part of Be Fit, which is T for Tell Somebody. But you have done parts of Be Fit. And that, more importantly, doesn't cost a thing. Alright guys, without any further ado, let's get into it. Episode 13 of The Long War. Welcome, history, friends, patrons, all to the 13th episode of When Diplomacy Fails Us, Examination of the Long War. Last time we got a bit technical and looked at how the Habsburgs were set up militarily along the eastern frontier. We saw them calculate the forces at their command, and then we discovered, after our explanation of how companies and regiments worked, that the numbers had essentially been fudged. Holy Roman Emperor Leopold did not have as many soldiers as he would have liked by the time his armed force of some 32,000 men headed due east along the Danube under the command of Charles of Lorraine. Under the circumstances though, with the Ottomans very definitely on the way and with Louis XIV's inclinations uncertain, it was the best he could do. Lorraine would hopefully lead the army to a great success by striking first along the Ottoman defences and then capturing a critical Turkish bastion, such as Neuhausel north of the Danube, or Estragon further down south, determined to go on the offensive, Lorraine was close to inconsolable when he learned that the Ottomans were already far closer than he had believed possible by the last week of May 1683. Learning that he was now trapped between Vienna to his northwest and the Grand Vizier's army to the south, Lorraine had some serious deliberating to do, as May became June and the strategic situation of the Habsburgs became ever more acute. Meanwhile, in the Ottoman camp, Kara Mustafa's huge armed host moved with a confidence and purpose painfully absent from the wandering Charles of Lorraine. It is here that we now turn our attention as we take you back to the scene of the Ottoman forces massing in Belgrade in mid-May 1683. Halting in his course, he commuted with himself a long time in silence. Estimating the great evils for all mankind which would follow their passage of the river, and the wide fame of it which they would leave to posterity. But finally, with a sort of passion, as if abandoning calculation and casting himself upon the future, and uttering the phrase with which men usually preclude their lunge into desperate and daring fortunes, let the die be cast, he hastened to cross the river. These were the words of Plutarch as he described the actions of one Caesar as he crossed the Rubicon River and proceeded to enter the pantheon of historical legend.
Infamous in the history of ancient Rome and seen as a kind of watershed moment in the development of it as a state, it's fair to say that when Kara Mustafa crossed the river Drava, he was crossing his own Rubicon. From this point he would not go back. To retreat would mean an admission of defeat, and to return to that spot with anything less than victory would be seen in the same light. It was impossible, once Mustafa crossed the Drava, to embark on anything less than a transformative campaign, and the news of his crossing reverberated all the way to Charles of Lorraine, as he learned that his enemy had done it, and that the Turk had definitely planned to test the might of the Habsburgs yet again. In the weeks before Mustafa's symbolic crossing of the River Drava, which would take him through the town of Ostjak that hosted it, the Grand Vizier had assembled his huge force for inspection by the Sultan at Belgrade. On the 13th of May 1683, following a series of meetings between Sultan Mehmed IV and his servant, a parade was held while the Sultan's sons Ahmed and Mustafa watched. The entire army was too large to even fully fit into Belgrade Square, and so the parade lasted even longer than it would have done had wider streets been there or had it been taking place in a larger space. Yet this handicap added a further sense of invincibility to the proceedings. Not only was the parade designed to present Sultan's army as incomprehensibly huge, with further auxiliaries and garrisons to add as the host marched onwards, but the parade also held a ceremonial purpose. By its end, at the feet of the Sultan, was Kara Mustafa. He kissed the ground where his Sultan had walked, and he knelt before him in honour of what was about to occur, in front of the most important men in the empire, as the pashas, the commanders and the soldiery looked on. Sultan Mehmed IV appointed Kara Mustafa as Saraskar, with powers of life and death over all he encountered, and with a station second only to the Sultan himself. As soon as he left his master's presence and led his army to its first port of call, the crossing at Ostjak along the River Drava as we saw in the last episode, Kara Mustafa would possess the rights of a Sultan on campaign. It was now all up to him. Never before had he been invested with so much power, yet this investment did not unnerve him. It was a promotion he had waited for since his career had begun. Once he led his army out of the camp outside Belgrade, under the watchful eye of a Sultan on the 20th of May 1683, Kara Mustafa marched with the confidence and supreme authority of one who had already seen his own success. He knew the facts, that the Habsburgs were in the dark, that their weaknesses were legion, that their Hungarian vassals had abandoned them, and that the Havberg remained divided over who the greatest threat was, and that the power of his own force of over 100,000 men far outmatched anything Leopold could offer in response. Perhaps because of these facts, Kara Mustafa was comfortable enough to take his time. He reached the crossing of Ostjak on the 25th of May, and he waited for the baggage train to catch up with him. Hailed as the incarnation of the Sultan's supreme authority, and treated as though he was the Sultan himself, Kara Mustafa must have believed that he was invincible. Had he known of his enemy's position hundreds of miles to the north, he would have had even more reasons to be confident. In stark contrast to Mustafa's confident step, Charles of Lorraine had been reduced to a crisis by the end of May. Unfamiliar with the geography or even the pattern of fortresses in the region along the river Danube, except for a campaign he took part in 20 years before in Hungary, Lorraine surely felt that the emperor and his council had chosen the wrong man for the job. He knew for a fact that Hermann of Baden, the president of the war council back in Vienna, 
and a firm advocate in the past of focusing on Louis XIV rather than on the Sultan, was a firm opponent of his. Whatever Lorraine sent back to Vienna, Baden seemed content to oppose. Within his very ranks were individuals who were fundamentally not on the same page, and who gave conflicting and inconsistent advice to the already torn Lorraine. His plan had seemed so simple at first, seize a symbolically important Turkish fortress, and force the Ottomans to spend time taking it, which would waste the campaigning season, and leave further space for Leopold. He had received orders from Leopold to continue with this plan, as late as the last day of May, but news of Kar Mustafa's crossing down south immediately set off alarm bells. Understanding that the Ottoman army had now broken into the Hungarian plains, and that their army was positioned now to march gradually northwards towards the set of Habsburg fortresses dotted along the Danube, Lorraine knew that to seize an Ottoman bastion would simply serve to waste time. John Stoy described Lorraine as becoming ill with worry and exhaustion, and considering the plethora of difficulties he faced, it's not hard to see why. While Kara Mustafa crossed south at Ostjak and began to lumber his massive force slowly northwards towards the marches, in the first week of June 1683, Lorraine felt pushed into marching his cumbersome army across the Danube and marching northwards himself, apparently away from the whole situation, aiming to seize the Ottoman fortress of Neuhausel, which was located north of the Danube. And I know we just said it would make no sense for Lorraine to take Ottoman fortresses when Vienna was in danger, but it wasn't completely Lorraine's fault that he now marched so far from his objective. Leopold continued to send contradictory advice to Lorraine, and he attempted to ease his concerns by talking up the importance of striking a blow against the Ottomans before they would have a chance to seize the initiative themselves. This act of marching away from the Ottoman danger and thus leaving the Hungarian interior further exposed to attack made Lorraine, understandably, very few Hungarian friends, but as commander-in-chief he remained convinced, perhaps out of sheer lack of direction if nothing else, of the need to land a killer blow against an Ottoman fortress rather than engage them in the open field. Of course, Lorraine's very tactic was needless as soon as Kara Mustafa was able to make the crossing. If any Ottoman bastions were to be captured, the wily Grand Vizier would simply let them fall. Vienna remained the target and everything else was expendable. That said, Mustafa knew firsthand of the improvements and reinforcements made to these bastions. He knew full well of the integrity of the different Ottoman strongpoints, having visited them himself in years past and having appreciated their strategically important positions. Mustafa thus had the advantage not merely because his force outnumbered Lorraine by as much as 3 to 1, but because he possessed an end goal which would not be compromised by external events, reassured as he was that nothing could possibly interrupt his grand march to the northwest. Lorraine, on the other hand, was consistent in his inconsistency, because he repeatedly changed his mind, and he didn't seem to put much definite force behind any new policy he adopted. This was because he was unsure of the land and cautious to make the most of his smaller force, yet this fear of making a mistake caused him to commit the worst sin of campaigning, the act of wasting time unnecessarily while the enemy advanced. An advance the enemy did. By the 26th of June, the Grand Vizier was camped below the walls of the old medieval capital of Hungary, and to get ready for this, the old medieval capital of Hungary was called Sikesh Fehervar, I'm told that's about as accurate as I'll ever get to it, 
and it was in Sikesh Vahervar that Kara Mustafa held a war council at midday on the 27th of June. After carefully selecting who could or couldn't attend, the result was a foregone conclusion, and the following morning on the 28th of June 1683, the army moved due north. Spreading out in front of Kara Mustafa as he marched was a somewhat intimidating sight. For one, the lack of solid ground anywhere made travel excessively slow and arduous, while the major portions of dry ground played host to some solid Habsburg fortresses, and these had been meant to stand as the anchor of their defence against an attack from the southeast. To give you an idea of what Mustafa would have seen, it helps to imagine the following mind map. First of all, try to bear in mind that square mind map we gave you before to help you imagine the soggy square plain of Hungary, which any army from the southeast would have to force their way through before they even reached the Danube or Vienna. At this point, Mustafa was standing in the centre of that square. Directly to his north was the Danube, and if he crossed that, he would be embracing the old Ottoman tactics of advancing towards Vienna along its better defended, but at least more traversable, series of roads which led to the capital. To his left, the river Raba snaked along and flowed to the northeast, before also emptying into the Danube. It was at this point where the Danube and River Raba met, essentially in the top left corner of Kara Mustafa's field of vision, that the most formidable Habsburg fortresses resided. Gior and Comorum were their names, and both stood as defiant bastions and guardians to the encroaching Ottoman Empire. They had the effect of dominating the lower-lying countryside where the marshes, swamps and flooded plains dominated, and where Mustafa's army approached. Habsburg logic had it that these two positions were unassailable, and to an extent they were, but the belief also dominated in Vienna that the Hungarian plains were close to impassable, and that even if the Ottoman host made it to the point where the Danube and River Raba met, the rivers were too deep to cross and the land could not support an enemy army for long, especially not one of Mustafa's reported size. Yet these assumptions form precisely the problem with the Habsburg mindset, in 1683. While we may look back on the situation and wonder how the Turks could ever have been so arrogant or how Mustafa could ever have been so sure of his success, events had shown up to this point that the Grand Vizier had every reason to be confident. What was more, while the conflicted command structure in Vienna and the general lack of intelligence on the enemy's intentions sent Charles of Lorraine all over the region north of the Danube before crawling back across the Danube on the 25th of June, Ottoman intelligence was steadily gathered from May 1683 onwards about the region, and the quality information Karim Mustafa thus had at his fingertips by the time he set out from, one last time, Sikesh Fahirvar, meant that the Habsburg position was even less secure than Charles of Lorraine or his superiors could have realised. Generations of Habsburg strategists had theorised that the combination of the river Danube, which flowed east before curving down south once you got some hundred miles downstream, and the river Raba, which flowed from the southwest into that same Danube and protected the more vulnerable interior, made Vienna's position impregnable. In their defence, 20 years before, Karim Mustafa's brother had marched an army of a terrifying size in the same manner that the Grand Vizier now did only to be halted at the Battle of St. Gotthard, as the Turks had tried to cross a more southern portion of the River Raba. There they had been met by Raimondo Montecugli, who inflicted a crippling blow to their forces and sent the Ottoman host packing across the waterlogged Hungarian plains. 
The victory had not led to a significant change in how the Habsburgs viewed their own defence system. If one was to stand in Vienna and look to the southeast, they would have the river Danube on their left side, which, which linked with the river Raba some 25 miles downstream, and which was populated by a series of tough nuts like Gior and Comorum that effectively guarded the sensitive crossings from the enemy. It was easy to become confident, is what I'm trying to say, bordering and complacent, that the Ottomans would fare just as badly as they had done in 1664, even though no commander of equal calibre to Montecuccoli could be found to lead the Habsburg defence. In actual fact, the Turks in 1664 had never been in the region long enough to discover that the entire Habsburg concept of naturally occurring river and marsh defences, bolstered by impregnable fortresses, was full of holes. To begin with, the legend of the natural barriers had been parroted for so long in Vienna that the lands around it hadn't been properly surveyed or even partially examined in living memory. No records of these essential activities existed in the military commander's hands in Vienna, and still less in the camp of Charles of Lorraine. What was more unnerving were that the facts of nature and civilian life tended to work against this apparently natural set of defences. The major reason for this was because it was summertime when the Ottomans and Habsburgs marched in 1683, and this meant that rainfall was comparably low, which affected the level of the rivers and streams, as well as the water table on the Hungarian plain in general. Not only then were several streams and rivers significantly reduced and fordable with relative ease, but in some places the swamps had naturally drained or evaporated, leaving softer ground unsuitable perhaps for artillery, but perfectly acceptable to soldiers who were used to traversing across far worse. Many portions of the region assumed impassable were thus reduced to mere irritation, and they slowed the Ottoman progress somewhat in comparison to, I don't know, a paved road, but not so much as to require the mapping out of completely alternative routes, which those in Vienna anticipated the Ottomans would be forced to repeatedly do while on the march. Indeed, even the acts of the civilian peasantry and farmer worked against the Habsburgs, as old planks of wood or locally constructed bridges unknown to the Vienna administration remained in place. With little extra effort, these makeshift but still reasonably sturdy bridges could be adapted for use by the rest of the Grand Vizier's army, with potentially devastating consequences for Habsburg fortunes. As late as the 27th of June, when Kara Mustafa concluded his final military council meeting and the decision among all senior officers was reached to march on Vienna, still the Habsburgs remained unaware of the true intentions of the Turk. If Vienna was included in the list of plans, they suspected several different versions of the Ottoman attack to occur. Would Mustafa construct a pontoon bridge across the Danube after marching north and ignoring the anchor of Habsburg fortresses to his left? Would the Ottomans make for Gior and deny the Habsburgs their best fortress? Would Mustafa cross the river Raba further downstream away from the major fortresses and then strike northwest towards Vienna? All of these were possibilities, yet rather than remain sure of either one of them or plan for each individually, the council in Vienna seemed content to debate and delay, handing Charles of Lorraine contradictory and vague orders as a result. Andrew Wheatcroft, our historian and guide really for this period, noted that Almost every senior Habsburg officer had his own opinion, each trying to enforce his own strategic view. 
and at the centre of this system was Leopold, the most procrastinatory, cautious and hesitant decision-maker of all of them. It didn't bode well for the Habsburgs if they couldn't rally behind a common strategy, particularly as it already seemed as though the enemy was advancing far faster than expected. Tartar raiders and scouts had sent shivers of panic among the different towns and settlements in their path, as fires rose in the distance. Word spread among Lorraine's camp as he shifted around the map that the Tartars had moved through Polish territory and bypassed the difficult marshes, while some had simply endured these same marshes and were now through to the wealthier heartland of the Austro-Hungarian border. There now appeared to be Tartar hordes on both sides of the Danube, and Lorraine was largely powerless to stop them. Camped as he was a few miles east of Vienna, while he waited for actually coherent orders and to see which direction the enemy would head, these unfortunate villagers were forced to fend for themselves. These experiences spread the terror and panic further. Many victims of the Tartars' bloody tactics didn't know the difference between a Tartar or a Turk, and they often claimed that the Ottomans were right up to their houses and destroying everything in their path, when in fact the Ottomans were technically over a 100 miles to the south under Mustafa and could move nowhere near as quickly as the eyewitnesses claimed. The Tartars had long since peeled off from the main host of Kara Mustafa's advance. Those that had joined up with the Grand Vizier at Belgrade in May now determined to blaze their own trails of devastation, a tactic which Mustafa knew full well would only benefit him and throw the defenders into disarray. The lack of coordinated defences among the targeted towns meant that the Tartars were able to ride roughshod over all they encountered, and the only way to combat their advance appeared to be high walls and a calm will to resist, both of which were lacking among the average exposed citizen. Thus, those acting in the name of the Khan, as well as their own interests of course, were able to raid far further west than Vienna, and they largely ignored any tough nuts they came across to ruin the countryside and cart off anything not nailed down instead. Obviously this sowed immense confusion, and travel outside of the major walled settlements proved pointless and far too dangerous in the face of their advance. The Tartars set fires, threw up clouds of dust far into the distance, and inflicted a terrible trauma on the undefended villagers they encountered, many of whom had received so many conflicting reports that some even managed to confuse the Tartars for Habsburg Irregulars or Croats, until they got close enough to strike. Rumour and terrifying updates reached the surrounding villagers and then eventually, Vienna. While the Tartars had raided, Kara Mustafa had moved towards Gyor on the 30th of June. Surely, it seemed now, this was the true Ottoman target. Yet, this fortress was only a means to an end for Mustafa. While he managed to spook Charles of Lorraine and force him away from the region towards the west, the real story was that the previous work of the scouts had proved invaluable. In their reconnaissance, they had spotted several places to ford without much difficulty downstream, while the army assembled in front of Gyor on the other side of the river Raba to hold Lorraine's attention. Soon, Lorraine had gotten wind of what was going on, and the fact that Kara Mustafa was sitting in front of Gyor on the opposite side of the river Raba with his large army, as large bodies of horse and infantry had crossed up and downstream, threatening to trap him and his forces in a pincer movement. Confident in Gyor's defensive position, Lorraine attempted to withdraw to the west with the bulk of his army, while a portion of Mustafa's army, once the coast was clear, kept Gyor cut off if not quite under siege. 
While Lorraine fled back towards Vienna, he spotted smoke rising from what seemed like all directions, just how many villages had been put to the torch, and how far the enemy really advanced. No clear answers were forthcoming, yet Lorraine knew he would have to warn the Emperor in Vienna of what he had seen, or, as some historians have judged, what he had just done. The date was the 2nd of July 1683, and by abandoning the Grand Vizier's army at Gior, Lorraine had just left the door open to the Habsburg interior. Vienna, at long last, glistened like a diamond in Kara Mustafa's eyes. The once impossible aim was now finally within his grasp. Only Lorraine and his scattered force stood between he and the golden apple of Christendom. On the afternoon of the 6th of July, 1683, a thoroughly oblivious Leopold endured a day's worth of satisfying hunting in his exclusive grounds. As he and his entourage chased down the helpless animals, there was little awareness among the party that, only a few hundred miles away, Tartar horsemen were engaging in a similar hunt of Leopold's subjects. There seemed no indication of panic, and Leopold engaged in his more leisurely pursuits in the same spirit as he had done over the previous years of his reign. Leopold was remarkably isolated from the realities of the situation, even at this late stage. He had no idea by the evening of the 6th of July that Karim Mustafa's force had forded the river Raba and bypassed Gyor, neutralising what had been meant to be the major stumbling block to the Ottoman advance with frightening ease. The only thing between Vienna and Karim Mustafa was Lorraine's force and then a march of less than 100 miles from Gyor to the capital. This route bypassed most of the worst marches and provided reasonably solid ground for the army to march upon. In short, it meant that Karim Mustafa's march to Vienna would take mere days rather than months. While Lorraine regrouped further west from Gyor, he appreciated that time was of the essence, so rather than march his whole army, he sent riders to Vienna to warn the emperor that the capital was under threat. These riders arrived in the late evening of the 6th of July, as Leopold was having his final mass before bed. The regimented routine that the Holy Roman Emperor went through every day at least made him easy to find, located as he was in his pride of place at St. Stephen's Cathedral. Informed of how drastically the situation had changed, that Lorraine had essentially failed to halt the invader, and that the man in charge of defending Vienna, Starenberg, was some day's march away with his troops, Leopold engaged in a frantic meeting with his advisers. They advised him almost unanimously to leave the city the following day. As the sleepless imperial family endured the night of the 6th to the 7th of July, Vienna was bombarded with a flood of different riders all bringing similarly grim news. That Gyor had fallen, which was untrue, that the Turks were only a day from the city, which was really untrue, and that the Ottomans possessed an army of over 300,000 men, which was about as close to myth as it got. The force of all these bringers of bad news on the government's morale further accelerated the need to evacuate in that government's mind. That morning they pressed Leopold again of the importance of not dallying and of leaving as soon as it was permissible. A few safe havens were discussed, with a northern voyage to Passau eventually decided upon. Wagons built up in the open courtyard of the Hofburg Palace, and Leopold prepared at 6pm on the 7th of July to announce to the citizenry that he and his family now planned to leave. It was the jolt in the arm several of the other wealthier families needed, rather than risk the Turkish onslaught, 
they would leave right away too. Although Leopold's flight made strategic sense, considering the fact that his son and sole heirs were far too young to withstand an intense siege and that the death of his family would mean the extinction of the Habsburg dynasty, the emperor was subsequently lambasted for his evacuation. While the court writers sort of portray Leopold as a noble and wise strategist for leaving Vienna on the understanding that he would rally Europe behind him whatever befell Vienna, the impact of the morale of those left behind in Vienna was devastating. Fortunately, these same citizens, from the poorest peasant to the most influential clergyman, didn't have the opportunity to dwell on their own feelings. On the following day of the 8th of July, the emperor was gone, but the work for Vienna was just beginning. Starenberg returned from his manoeuvres that same day, while Lorraine's cavalry paraded around the city amidst a large and rehearsed pageantry of loud and confident music designed to forestall the panic of the citizens. The move had mostly been the idea of Lorraine because he recognised that the citizens needed to be reminded of what was at stake and, for the moment at least, it seemed to do the trick. As Starenberg consolidated his position, everyone who could hold a spade was put to work. There was still much to be done and the constant influx of refugees, many of whom brought their own terrifying stories and warnings, yet who at the same time had never seen a Turk in their lives, added to the sense of urgency. The citizens of Vienna acted out of a fearful sense of inevitability, as much as they acted because the city was now under a state of martial law, prepared solely for its defence against the Turk, which was now destined to come. Perhaps the citizens wondered how their emperor had allowed affairs to get this far. Didn't they pay their exorbitant taxes? Didn't they say their masses every day? Didn't they hear daily updates on the progress of the Turk? How would their protector manage to so bungle the defence of the Habsburg homeland to the extent that the enemy now threatened Vienna for the first time in 150 years? It's a question historians have grappled with ever since the event. But now we've largely answered it. It was through a combination of gross Habsburg miscalculation, skillful Ottoman strategy and intelligence gathering, and solid obedient progress that Karim Mustafa willed his huge host forward. The story with Vienna was changing from one of campaign to one of resistance. Next time, we'll resume our story of this resistance, as the Turk finally makes his resplendent terrifying appearance. I know you've been waiting for a really long time, and I know you've been really patient, and yes, next time, it's finally going to happen. We'll also see how, hundreds of miles to the north, a special call was going out to the only true ally of the Habsburgs. The unthinkable had happened, and the emergency accords, which Jan Sobieski had signed, would now have to be implemented after all. It was time for the King of Poland to come to the aid of Vienna. I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our coverage of this incredible story then. Until then, history friends, my name is Zach and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.